Welcome to American Ambassadors Events, the podcast that enables listeners to sit in on otherwise exclusive events hosted by the Council of American Ambassadors. This episode features a presentation on U.S. policy in the Middle East by Ambassador Frank G. Wisner at the Council's Economic Diplomacy Conference on November 13, 2019 in New York City. This session was moderated by CAA President Timothy Chorba, U.S. Ambassador to Singapore during the Clinton administration. Thanks. Thank you for all our guests who've uh, come today. Now let me turn to um, uh, briefly introducing Frank Wisner. As I men- Ambassador Frank Wisner. As I mentioned, Ambassador Wisner, Princeton graduate, he was ambassador to Zambia, Egypt, the Philippines, and India. And he also played a pivotal role uh, in the outcome of the Kosovo situation, and at some point today he'll, we'll mention that. He's been, uh, he served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and as Undersecretary of State for International Security Affairs. And today he provides strategic global advice concerning business, politics, and uh, international law uh, with, the, uh, with his uh, law firm here uh, in New York, uh, Squire Patent Box. So with that, by way of introduction, let me uh, turn the microphone over to Ambassador Wisner. Would you rather hold it or have a short stand? Tim, thank you. Um, It is a genuine pleasure to be back together with you. Tim failed to mention that he, like I, have served with Squire Patton Boggs. Um, Tim, I miss you a great deal. So does the firm. But I'm glad the uh, American Council continues to profit from your terrific services. It is an opportunity as well this morning for me to greet a number of old friends. Um, I'm not going to try to mention each one of you. That would be embarrassing to you. But I am really delighted to be back here amongst all of you um, and to be part of the discussion you're going to have today. I'm going to come at it, your considerations of this country, our economy, and abroad by coming in a slightly different direction and talk about the Middle East. I do so because it's in the news, and it has been in the news uh, since 9-11 and will continue to be in the news. And what is happening in that region profoundly affects the course of American, the American, America's place in the world and as well the United States economy. Um, I bring you back, however, to the situation in the region because it remains deeply fraught. It has never regained stability since the outset of the Arab Spring in 2010 and 11. Uh, The revolutions that took place then upended regimes across the region and did something additional, tore the societies apart, uh, disseminated uh, instability throughout Arab societies, whether they were in nations that <clears throat> were directly affected by, uh, by the outbreak of Arab Spring or were indirectly affected as the nations in the Gulf were. Nobody escaped the consequences. Among the other consequences was the intrusion of outside powers 
into the region. Uh, the Russians have arrived, the Iranians, the Turks, and indeed, as we know from bitter experience, the United States has gone to war in the region and remains deeply engaged. Um, the situation that we face today is a situation that has upended American policy. Policies established in the early 1970s during President Nixon's presidency and Henry Kissinger's diplomacy since 1973, the expulsion of the Soviet Union from the region. Today we find ourselves with the United States' long position of advantage having been significantly eroded. And as a result, uh, no conceivable way can we imagine going back to where we, the position of power and influence we enjoyed in the region before the Arab Spring rebellions broke out in the early part of the last decade. And what have we seen in addition? The end of authoritarian regimes in many countries upon which we based our policy. Egypt was only one, um, but that the effect has been uh, to destabilize regimes across the area. And why? Destabilized because those regimes over the decades had failed to address the most important needs of Arab populations, have <clears throat> needs of economics, needs of democratic participation, needs of basic security. For out of the Arab Spring, if there is one enduring lesson we all should take away from it and continue to take away from it is insecurity. Insecurity, one nation on the next, uh, the Irans and the Saudi Arabias, Israel and the rest of the region, insecurity within societies, insecurity surrounding competing ideologies, the rise of non-state actors, the Muslim brothers, the <clears throat> terrorism that accompanied the rise of Islamic radicalism. Insecurity is the prevailing, prevailing sentiment of the region. And sadly, with what we are watching today, no end in sight. For as we sit here, uh, outbreaks of new violence have, are occurring in Lebanon, in <coughs> uh, Algeria, demonstrations the last weekend, which are certain to continue through the planned pre presidential elections. In Iraq, uh, in September, in Egypt again, we have seen Sudan convulsed and the government collapse as recently as this summer. And so we live in a time of instability. And we're not going to see an end to the situation the United States and the world faces with the Middle East, not for a long time to come. Literally, no end in sight. With civil wars prevalent in Yemen and Libya and instability elsewhere, there is, until we see the day in which there is domestic stability to some degree restored, and a balance of power among outside players, you will not see a return of some measure of order in the region and less pressure on American interests. The region is, the Middle East is today, as polarized as it's ever been. It is volatile. Uh, it's one step away from war, a war by calculation or miscalculation 
that would involve the United States, notably in the Gulf. So we have to take a step back and look at this situation that has uh, worsened over the past two decades and ask ourselves, are our interests the same? Is the United States still engaged for the same set of reasons that traditionally defined American policy, the traditional ways of defining American interests? And I'd like to argue with you, and I suspect I would find ready agreement among many of you, that the picture is no longer quite so clear. It is no longer obvious just how American interests are affected by events in the Middle East. We have the notable example of the change in our petroleum uh, industry and the production of hydrocarbons due to the advent of fracking technologies and other advances in petroleum hydrocarbon production has made this country much less dependent on the Middle East. That isn't to say there isn't a degree of dependence, direct dependence, but much less. Second, it is really basically true as we look at the region that we have managed over the past several decades to find ourselves involved in conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, conflicts that have had the effect of undermining American self-confidence in our public at large, within our Congress, confidence in our diplomacy, confidence in ourselves as a staying power in the region. And as our confidence is ebbed, others have advanced. Russia has reasserted itself in, in the area as has Iran moved well beyond its borders and nations of the Gulf, traditional allies of the United States, have taken note of our retreat and declining interest to fix themselves, to begin to look for new arrangements, including arrangements with Russia. So we have to then say, are we out of the game? And of course we're not. The interests that kept us in the Middle East continue to preoccupy American policy and needs to preoccupy all of you. The interest lies still in hydrocarbons for the provision of oil and natural gas from the Middle East is the lifeblood of the international economy, and we are heavily dependent on the success of that economy. It is also true that we remain deeply committed to the security of the State of Israel. We are sharply mindful of 9-11 and the threat that terror emanating from the Middle East poses to United States and uh, American citizens worldwide. And finally, I argue that no nation, no nation, including our own, lives easily without playing a role in the Middle East, nor has throughout history. The geostrategic reality of the central position of the Middle East in our lives has not changed and will continue to attract American attention and American policy. So it's worth at this point to begin to take a step back and look at our response, what we can do, what we've done, and what we ought to do. And I start with a reflection that is somewhat disobliging. And that is, 
taking a leaf out of Henry Kissinger's book to note that strategy as an American habit is not one of our fortes. Kissinger argues that Americans have long had the resources and the geographic isolation to permit them not to have to worry about national strategy, not to have to be strategic in the choices that we make. Um, but that's not true today. We're faced with a changing world order, a rebalancing of power, a diminished position for the United States, but a significant one, one in which we're going to have to manage our affairs in the years ahead by a careful, careful balance of interests with other nations, and that requires strategy. And so the absence of strategy is equally painful, as we've learned both in Iraq and Afghanistan, our failure to determine our objectives, to set them out clearly, has left us stuck with what is now popularly called endless wars. Uh, <clears throat> so what is strategy? Strategy is well known to all of you who practiced the trade of diplomacy. Strategy is basically at core about determining what your objectives are and then examining those objectives with clear-eyed assessments and careful planning and making absolutely certain that you match what you have set out to do with the resources and the public support you require in order to accomplish those resources, accomplish those objectives. And I bet you if each one of us sits down and looks back over the past several decades, we'd have to conclude the United States has not practiced particularly in the Middle East strategy and default position has been the excessive use of military force. So it is time to re-examine policy and to make certain that we pursue, design and pursue strategy that will affect our interests not only in that region but worldwide. And we have to start with the assumption that we have to be smart. Smart and certainly before we engage, figure out where we're going. Let's look for a second at the misassessments that the United States engaged in that brought us to much of the difficulty we're currently facing. Misassessments about Russia, that Russia would, was a spent force on the international stage, while in fact Russia's determination to assert its national power has brought it squarely back into the Middle East. Look at Iran, a misassessment of how far Iran was prepared to go to defend its interests in the region. Misassessment of Turkey and what it would do to defend its borders from what it saw as core threats to itself. Misassessments of the Arab world, assumptions that somehow when the Arab Spring began, democracy would break out and all we had to do was be positioned in a manner that would permit us to promote it. And each of these assessments has proved to be deeply flawed and has undermined the pursuit of policy on behalf of the United States. So I'm gonna look at a couple of examples in particular and then draw some general conclusions. The first example that I hearken to your attention is the question of Iran. And I believe, and I pick it as my top choice, 
because I believe that until the United States gets our relationship with Iran balanced and thought through and re-examined and re-pursued, we will not have a stable policy towards the Middle East. We need to think hard about the relationship. And it starts with an assessment of what Iran really is, not what we imagine it to be or what we wish it to be. For Iran is a country that has real national interest, a historic position in the region. We may not agree nor like. We may have been a victim of the experience of 1979, but that doesn't change the fact that Iran is a major power in the region and will pursue national objectives which can or cannot be compatible with our own, but those that we have to take into account. Iran is a nation that is in pursuit, not of imperial dominance, as some would argue, of the region, but of profound national security design, and its domestic order is not fragile, as often pretended. It has proved itself to endure wars with Iraq, uh, a protracted confrontation with the international community, and now with the United States, and as we stand here today, the Iranian economy has bounced back from the sanctions reintroduced in 2017-18 and continue to be introduced by our own administration. We began to take a fresh look at our posture towards Iran during the Obama administration after some 20 years of estrangement. Um, and basically, the administration got it right. It said to itself and to this country, we need to sort out the most dangerous aspect of Iranian national power, its nuclear pretensions. And we were architects of the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran, a real triumph in my mind for American diplomacy for not only did it contain the Iranian nuclear problem, but it was an exercise of mobilizing nations, uh, the United States together with France, Britain, Germany, Russia, and China to bring a framework of control Iran's, around Iran's nuclear program. The sad part was that it was only to be a stepping stone, a stepping stone strategically to carry the United States forward and engage Iran on the issues that otherwise trouble Iran's position in the region, its missile endowments and its ability to interfere in the affairs of neighboring states. But given the fact that the JCPOA was reached at the end of the Obama administration, Obama himself lost heart in the pursuit of other objectives and waited for an election. And with the election, and the arrival of Donald Trump in office, we saw, we have seen the complete reversal of what we started to do in the search of normalization of our ties with Iran. I have moved, we have all moved now from a position of finding accommodation to the pursuit of maximum pressure as the administration has chosen to describe it, uh, full-scale sanctions not only against Iran, but against any nation in the world that trades with Iran, particularly trades in hydrocarbons.
This situation has produced much of the crisis we're currently facing, for the Iranians were quick to conclude after recovering their step, that recovering their, their position, that they had to deal with uh, inflation and the rapid decline in GDP growth, much of which they have dealt with, and they would then have to turn to how to counter the pressure they felt they were under from the United States. That countering is in full swing today. It has included steps, four now in number, in which Iran is backed away from the JCPOA. It includes the use of limpet mines in the Gulf to disrupt shipping, and it included the shooting down of an American drone. It has included, whether directly or indirectly, a direct Iranian attack on Saudi's, Saudi Arabia's oil facilities. In short, the Iranians have made it clear that if they're going to be put under pressure, they will respond with pressure, and that pressure will not relent anytime soon. The problem with our policy is that we overestimated our ability to bring about change. I recall in my own life, McGeorge Bundy concluding when he looked back on the Vietnam War, he was asked, what is the mistake we made? And McGeorge Bundy responded, we made two mistakes. We overestimated our ability to compel our opponent to do what we wanted it to do, and we underestimated the other man's ability to resist. I would argue that that misassessment continues to be the case with Iran today. And as a result, we are watching maximum pressure and maximum resistance, leaving us in a highly uncertain position with forces now readily aligned and no certain future in front of us. The Iranians have advanced an idea to bring together the nations of the Gulf and in a peace conference in chain, move from war war to jaw jaw. Uh, we have turned a blind eye to that offer. The Russians have supported it today or in the last several days. The UAE has come out in favor of such a uh, engagement to try to reduce tensions in the area. Qatar has come out forthrightly as well in favor. In short, there is a diplomatic way to contain the situation and one that we have to give serious consideration to. At the moment, we continue to be wedded to maximum pressure uh, with the president offering a meeting with the Iranians, the Iranians resisting that until such a time as they feel they have an absolute guarantee our oil sanctions will be lifted, a decision the administration has been unwilling to take. And so we sit in a most perilous situation I've known in the Gulf and have known throughout my career and all of our times. Syria represents another problem for American policy, one that you've observed, um, a serious misreading as well of Syria, the situation within Syria, the viability of the regime in Syria, and the interests of others on the outside. We believed in the beginning that Assad would not be able to survive the challenge. He experienced that he would go the way of Mubarak and Ben Ali. That's proved not to be the case. 
We did not assume that Russia would stand by its long-standing interests in Latakia and go to war literally on the side of the Syrian government to maintain Russia's position and develop that position into a springboard of influence throughout the Arab world. We did not assume that Iran had either the resources or the staying power to mobilize proxies in support of the Syrian regime far in excess of anything that we could mobilize on our side. And we overlooked the fact that Turkey was determined throughout to protect its borders from Kurdish infiltration and would in the end go to any limits to achieve that objective and would pay scant regard to pleas from the United States to show restraint. These misassessments have led us into a position where we are really ham are hamstrung and tied in knots. And our policy has reflected the confusion of our misassessment. We've see sought regime change and it failed there. We've sought to block Iran. We failed in that regard. We've sought to protect Israel and Israel is engaged in more bombing attacks in Syria today than at any time in its history. We have failed finally in keeping uh, NATO fully engaged with Turkey and Russia out of the area. None of these objectives have been achieved. And so I will argue with all of you, it's time to stand back and think again. And if we needed to be reminded our, the trap we slipped into with the Kurds as we sought to use them to counter terror and destroy ISIS, a trap set when the Kurds found common cause with us to protect their identity in the region and we with them to defeat ISIS to find ourselves now driven out of our relationship with the Kurds in the most embarrassing manner, one that sent dark signals throughout the region. So Syria is not in good shape. And at core, I would argue with you, it was never in good shape for we set military objectives over any political outcome. The only political outcome now that makes sense is the Astana process launched by Russia in consultation with Turkey and Iran to reestablish some form of a Syrian state. And that process, which we have given cold shoulder to, is now back as a challenge to the United States. If we're to be relevant in Syria, we're going to have to be part of that process. Finally, let me touch on the persistent and unhappy question of Israel and Palestine. When Obama left office, there was no doubt in my mind, and I doubt in any of yours, that we'd hit a hard, hard uh, cement wall. The chances of achieving easily in the face of persistent Israeli objections, a two-state solution to the Middle East had evaporated. The resistance of the Israeli government, the expansion of settlements, meant that the United States was faced with a new set of choices, which Obama left to this administration. And after brief reflection, it decided to upend decades of American policy and pursue an America first strategy that led us directly into the current situation we're in 
in which we have now no longer any standing with the Palestinians. We have torn up our support of UNRWA. We've granted uh, denied recognition of the Palestinian authorities, political representation abroad. We have turned and changed American policy over Jerusalem. We've taken a step back and given the Golan Heights the blessing of American recognition as part of Israel and all without any form of compensation in terms of the reach, in terms of arriving at political objectives. This upending of decades of American diplomacy based on a nuanced engagement of the United States with the nations of the Arab world, with the Palestinians and the Israelis has proved not to work. Uh, the attempts to launch a new problem-solving strategy have come to naught, and they will continue to come to naught. The only way forward is to return to what the decades have tossed, taught us, that you need an international consensus, you need a balanced solution, one that takes Israeli as well as Palestinian interests into account. So let me conclude with a couple of thoughts. I am not of the school that the United States is without influence or power. I believe very strongly we have both. Second, I am not of the mind that all is lost in the Middle East, that others have taken our place. Every power engaged in the Middle East today faces limits. Russia clearly has her limits. Iran has its limits. We have our limits. It's the recognition of limits that permits each of us to begin to think about how we engage the other. Third, I would argue that it is time to sit down and rethink where we're headed and be certain we clarify our objectives and match those objectives with both resources and a rebuilding of confidence in our policies with our home audiences in Congress and the public at large. And without that kind of understanding and support now absent, we will not be able to sustain fresh policy towards the region. But I argue fresh policy towards the region must be politically based, not based on the achievement of military objectives which have proven once again to be fleeting and our policies in the region cannot be achieved alone. They have to be in concert with our European allies and in understandings painfully negotiated with opponents like the Russians. You cannot proceed alone, and that mistake we should once again have learned. So whether we go back to a two-state solution or we get Iran right, the practice of diplomacy lies at the center of where American policy should be in the region. And it's that message which all of you have devoted a significant portion of your lives to. I leave with you again today and with my thanks. Thank you. So before we field uh, the first uh, question or comment from the floor, let me ask, uh, let me initiate uh, a question. Ambassador Wisner, you've articulated uh, 
the, the issue that misassessments of the uh, situations in the plural in the Middle East have uh, led to the circumstances at which we find ourselves today. Who is responsible or who was responsible for those misassessments? There are, I'll, I'll just articulate four quick potential players. You have the Department of State, the Department of Defense, the National Security Council, and White Houses in the plural. So whom would you, at, at whose doorstep would you lay uh, the misassessments? Misassessments, Tim, begin with leadership. And that means it begins with the President of the United States. And I hope I've been careful and clear today that it didn't just begin with Donald Trump's administration. Um, I began to detect a drift away from the engagement that we needed to pursue and the policies that we had to follow as far back as the Clinton administration. When we emerged from the Cold War in 1989 uh, with a sense that we had almost absolute say in the Middle East, um, virtually in the eyes of others, a position of hegemony. And that position, because it looked hegemonistic to others, became an object that they would have to compete against. And so right from the outset, we were faced with opposition to the objectives that we unilaterally set. Often objectives, Tim, that were based on domestic perceptions and sprang from political needs here at home. Reflections that the right kind of policy should serve the United States in the pursuit, for example, of democracy in the region, a region that, of course, needs democracy, but how you go about it uh, is another question. So I start and lay the blame at the, of misassessment at the feet of four presidencies. Uh, inside of that, uh, there have been plenty of warnings from bureaucracies and plenty of assumptions of those bureaucracies that we were pursuing either uh, the wrong immediate strategy or the wrong overall strategy. But there has been a prevalence of thinking, not only in state, defense, and in our political communities in the NSC, that whatever mistakes we made of misassessment, misappreciation, or misdefinition of objectives, we could make up with military force or pressure, whether that pressure was violent, kinetic, or that pressure was economic in the form of sanctions, that the United States had such reserves of power as to be able to overcome any error that we undertook. And so if you look at Afghanistan, which I didn't touch on, a uh, classic case, we went there to defeat uh, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and the attack on the World Trade Center. We ended up changing our objectives to build a new Afghan state, and 18 years later, we're still at it with no end in sight. The uh, end is in sight. The end will inevitably mean the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan and leaving Afghanistan in the hands of those in the region to whom Afghanistan serves as a neighbor. But uh, a lesson we would hope we'll learn again. We didn't learn it in Vietnam. I hope we will learn it out of Iraq and out of Afghanistan.
but the problem is less in the uniformed military, in the civilian agencies, than in the political leadership. Uh, I'm, I'm George Bruno, uh, and I, I came down from New Hampshire to join the conversation. You were ambassador in Belize. I was ambassador in Belize. Uh, so could you uh, say a word about uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, and how it fits into what you're talking about? For three years, we've been waiting for the Kushner peace plan. Uh, maybe it got uh, affected to some extent by the uh, Khashoggi situation, but uh, I, I, I noticed that, uh, uh, that Saudi Arabia recently last year had uh, a trade conference in which uh, a lot of countries didn't show up, but then again this year uh, they uh, continued the trade conference and it seemed like business as usual. So where's this, uh, where's this peace plan that uh, we've been promised for uh, two and a half years now? I hope in the third of my three examples I indicated that it is nowhere, will go nowhere. I even doubt it will ever be published as a peace plan for peace it cannot achieve. It has no support, obviously, among the Palestinians uh, who have never been consulted in the design of the elements of the plan and the hope that it would achieve support from the Gulf Arabs uh, was ill-founded. Uh, even uh, MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, the indications he gave Kushner that he might be partial to considering uh, was overcome by his own, his father, King Salman, that until there was an understanding acceptable to the Palestinians, there could not be an understanding acceptable to Saudi Arabia. So the assumption, misassumption in my mind, that Saudi Arabia would change sides, would come down on its interests in opposition to Iran, would overcome its hostility towards Israel, and that it would be a partner in bringing an end to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has proved a classic misassessment and has condemned literally the so-called peace plan uh, to the trash can. I believe that the only way back uh, is a return to the more nuanced uh, approaches we took in which you try to achieve some balance, communications with all sides, and the maintenance of a balance internationally, uh, which we have lost as we pursued unilateral objectives in the buildup to the plan. But there's a second misassessment, and that is that by taking one side in the cross-Gulf crisis uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, we would somehow preserve and advance American interests. I believe that too has failed, and we're now watching Saudi Arabia having to reassess itself and slip into line with the increasing majority among the Gulf Arab states that realize they have to find some way to manage the crisis with Iran rather than confront Iran. And the signals I'm getting out of Saudi Arabia is that that reassessment is full in full swing. And it means a diminishment of the capacity of the United States 
to impose a Saudi against Iran strategy. Our interests lie, I think you can tell from what I'm saying, in having a policy that puts us right in the middle of the Persian Gulf, neither on Iran's side nor Saudi Arabia's side. Neither side puts American interests first. We have to put our own interests first. And they're not in the victory of one side of the, over the other, which is unachievable, but in some degree of understanding and bringing a fraught situation under control so we don't find ourselves in a war. No, it's not history. It's not a history. It's a, it's a burr in the saddle of our relationship with the Saudis that will not go away. It continues to fire sentiment in our media communities, in uh, the United States Congress, uh, remains highly alive to the non-resolution of the Khashoggi matter. It cannot be resolved for in its resolution, it, you would find guilt assigned to uh, the crown prince and those around him. So uh, it's going to lay out there. If you watch uh, carefully, uh, it may be possible with the size of the Aramco IPO that many investors will find it attractive to come and take a look at uh, acquiring Saudi assets and even investing in Neom or other adventures, uh, ventures put forward as part of 2030, the grand Saudi plan for the remaking of the economy, looking at it on basis of profit loss, of proper returns on investment. But that does not secure Saudi Arabia's position politically. It is in the worst shape I've known it in my lifetime, not only because of Khashoggi and what happened to him, but Saudi behavior in Yemen uh, which has produced this catastrophic civil war and Saudi uh, unwillingness to find ways out of the problems in the region, stand behind us and let us try to carry the bucket. Uh, so it's going to take a lot to rebuild the relationship with Saudi Arabia on a balanced basis in our Congress with our public at large. And therefore, I stand by my own prediction that the relationship, apart from business, day-to-day -day business, profit and loss, is in the worst position it's been in in my lifetime. As you know, I was ambassador to the European Union and the European communities. I do. I have maintained uh, relationships with some key people. And there is one person in particular who has been so prescient about what was going to happen in Europe that I stand in awe. And what he's told me recently is that the United States is not part of a lot of decision making among the members of Europe lately. It used to be very much involved. And that if it continues, we will be relatively out of the European picture in terms of economic and political growth. How do you assess that? I, I think the, I, I both agree and disagree. Uh, I agree that we have, by our own agency, stepped away from Europe, stepped away from Europe's issues,
taken positions that are contrary to the majority views in Europe. We have aligned ourselves politically with the disruptive elements in Hungary, uh, Poland. Uh, we have aligned ourselves with Brexit uh, before Brexit was ever negotiated. And rather than letting it play its way out and standing back, all issues of profound significance to the European Union. Uh, we have, at the same time, bolstered NATO and belittled it. We've raised the issue of compliance with budgetary, uh, the 2% budget commitment to a political level that it never should have reached. It doesn't mean the Europeans shouldn't be spending a proper amount on their defense, but it should not be part of the core tissue of the alliance. And so a wake-up call when, when Macron the other day said it's time for Europe to reconsider its core security interests and begin to think about strategic autonomy, not just in defense matters, but politically, a sense that Europe cannot count on the United States to align itself with European interests or to accommodate or attempt to bring our two sides together, but rather to go on our own. That's the part I agree with. The part I disagree with is that I think it's easier to imagine European strategic autonomy than to achieve it. Um, that the United States uh, is core to the security of Europe. Without the United States, there is no defense against predators, uh, against Europe's security, against Russia. Uh, there is no core uh, defense there's no core underlying uh, strength to European economy unless there is a strong economic and trading relationship with the United States. We simply cannot be ruled out of the equation or cannot rule ourselves out of the equation. But it takes a return to some sense of balance and appreciation. And where I think we will end up at some point whether it's this administration or the next or the next after that, we will end up in a place in which Europe assumes a greater responsibility for its defense, exerts greater political uh, independence of thinking, and we in Europe find ways of balancing our economic interests. It won't be the old, the 2016 is not coming back there will be a different future. Just exactly what its parameters will be, none of us are able to predict today. And that will be it, we'll run it out. Thank you. I was ambassador to Romania under President Clinton. Um, you sound incredibly optimistic to me, and I'm serious about that. I'm not joking. Nope. Um, you paint this picture in the Middle East in particular, but also just now with Europe, of where we have uh, disconnected intentionally or unintentionally, and when we've connected, we've messed it up. Why do you believe, or if you do believe, do you believe that the likelihood, or certainly there's a possibility, that we can get back in a, in a posture in relation with the Europeans and our situation in the Middle East that is actually constructive for America, as opposed to the momentum going in the other direction and it getting much, much worse? 
Uh, Jim, I'm, I cannot rule out in the very short term we cannot make matters worse. Uh, but there is an inevitability. We are a great nation and we are intimately linked to the fate of what happens elsewhere in this world. As we today have chosen as national policy to deny uh, the threat of climate change, we will be forced back into recognizing that we must be part of addressing the issues of climate change. In the same manner, we cannot assure our own security without an international understanding. We cannot assure our economic well-being unless it's within an international context. And so whether it's today or tomorrow, we're gonna to be going back. And my confidence is that the strength of this country is such that we can endure our intellectual capabilities, our economic capabilities, indeed our military capabilities make us a key player. There's no reason to despair. But the key decision is a political one. Does the United States want to engage? And can we convince Americans again that engagement actually affects the life of Scranton or Wilkes Bar or uh, Northern Michigan or New Hampshire, uh, that uh, ordinary Americans are better off being involved in the world and less well off if we're disengaged. Um, I think more than a few of us go back to the Cold War warrior years. And in many ways, we had a, a much simpler compass. In fact, we had a compass, yes. and we do not have one now. And right. I think it's a mistake not to recalibrate and rethink the future, not just in the terms of globalization, but the dynamics, uh, whether it's in NATO or um, Southeast Asia or other places. Um, in one of my lives, I, as you know, I'm producing documentary films and just finished one on the uh, first woman Sharia judge in the Middle East. So it's tempting to go to that, but in, in another life, I'm a co-founder of the new Center for Commerce and Diplomacy that's just launched at uh, University of California, San Diego, and Condi Rice sort of helped the kickoff. And my question to you as one of our highly respected uh, career diplomats, and I know we go back uh, 30 years or so, um, how would you redefine diplomacy now? And I have to admit, I did not come up with the idea of a center for commerce and diplomacy. Others did. But I'm quite intrigued with it. And I would also like your thoughts uh, about going forward on how, one, you redefine com uh, diplomacy, and two, uh, the interplay between commerce and diplomacy. All good questions, Diana, and I'm delighted about your new venture. Um, when I came this morning, I turned to Tim and said, please, would everyone take a moment and read this morning's article in The Hill written by former Ambassador Ron Newman and former Under Secretary of State Mark Grossman precisely on the point of American diplomacy um, and why 
young Americans ought to think about joining our foreign service as opposed to the declining numbers that are in fact applying for public service and government service. Uh, part of my answer lies in what they had to say and I won't burden you because all of you will enjoy this piece. But I come to a slightly, I start slightly different place. Um, I believe we have decisively entered a world in which we have to recognize that we share power, we don't control power, that we have to sort our way through and protect our interests in balance with others. It may take longer, be frustrating, not appear to match what we believe is the right way to proceed, but then we don't define reality all by ourselves. Others have their say and point of view, and that's where diplomacy comes in. It is that essential bridge between our aspirations and the needs and aspirations of others with whom we share power. If you don't have that bridge, then determining what the other side is thinking about and how to get there, what are the right objectives, what are the resources you're going to need, you won't be able to arrive. Diplomacy is an instrument, but it's an instrument that only begins to be useful once you have a political decision on strategy. And strategy, in my judgment, means today we have to recognize we have new challenges, challenges like climate change, but we have challenges of dealing with other great nations in the world, and that means a balance of power, almost in the sense that the European statesmen of the 17th century wrestled with at Westphalia. How do you think the Brexit process is going to end? Will Britain get any benefits from the EU? Will there be a re-vote in Britain? Uh, <laughs> if I tough. knew that, uh, I would be a seer. I certainly am not. Uh, the outcome today is really uncertain. Uh, we don't know the outcome of the British election. Will there be another hung parliament? It's quite conceivable. And if there is another hung parliament, uh, then there will be yet another election. Uh, is it possible that there, out of this would come a parliament with a labor majority? Um, as uneasy as that makes me, um, it could lead to another vote, so that's another option. Uh, so literally, none of us know. Um, and the British nation is exhausted with this problem because I think it's finally become clear where your question opens is that there are no advantages accruing to Britain as a result of Brexit that offsets the, uh, the penalties Britain will pay. Even the dream of, of, uh, of free trade agreements with nations like our own are very complex in the face of backstop. So um, I can sympathize with my British friends 
in their exhaustion, but they got themselves in this mess, so they're going to have to get out of it. Ambassador Wisner mentioned the article by uh, Ambassadors Grossman and Newman that's appearing in The Hill today uh, about the need for America's youth to uh, make application to the Department of State for Career Foreign Service and other government uh, positions throughout the, uh, the federal system. We are going to endeavor to uh, print that article in our own Ambassadors Review, which is going to press felicitously this week. So we have, we, we'll stop the press and, and stop the press says in the plural and get that article, uh, try to get that article in. And we will also, uh, in our next uh, hard mailing to the whole membership, we will include a copy of that article. So all of you will have, uh, and beyond the walls of this room, will have uh, the benefit of what uh, Ambassador Wisner has mentioned. And with that, Ambassador Tal, you've been itching and waiting, and now it's your turn. I'm Timothy Towell, uh, 30 years in the State Department, starting in the John Fitzgerald Kennedy administration, and a close friend of the Honorable Frank Wisner for years. Uh, I'd like to ask you to follow up a little more on Iran, because a lot of people in this world, including in Washington, nobody in this room, of course, thinks all little Middle Eastern countries are the same, and we have to diddle around like this, playing funny adult in adult games. Iran, as we all know, or should know, is Persia. It was alive and well a thousand years ago, a great culture, algebra, science, music, and civilized people. Not a bunch of people that went colonialist after World War I, sat down at tea with a map and a pencil and said, this for you and this for me. So it's a different thing and we deal with serious places in a different way. But then they made a mistake, didn't they? They were amused by people that wore ties rather than whatever those things are, and they decided to amuse us with, a, with an election. So they had an election, but somebody we used to know, Kim Roosevelt, great family, did the wrong thing, and when a progressive, I won't say left wing, when a progressive guy won, we overthrew him and put in a guy as they called the Shah, who was dressed up, I'm not through yet, was dressed up like the doorman of the Ritz in Paris with all those dangling things on him. And young people that didn't like that crap thought it was a US problem and attacked our embassy. They're now old people, by the way, in Iran. Uh, therefore, we have to deal with Iran differently and realize they're serious adult places in open up this dialogue with a very historical important place. And you made that, but does the United States get that? Does everybody in this room gets it, or should, including my dear friend here. Uh, but do you think we'll ever get that in our lifetime, sir? Thank you for the question. Got it. Well, your assessment of the importance of Iran and its history is obviously I accept that, um, but that doesn't mean the Iranians are going to be easy customers. Uh, they're not. They have very different ambitions. They believe the United States uh, power in the region has been malign from their point of view. Our identification with Israel has caused distortions 
in the region's landscape, which they are determined to address. But at the same time, they're an ancient people, and they are a people that recognizes reality. And reality is that's their neighborhood. Uh, they don't get to make all the choices on their own. They have to share. Um, there's a recognition in Iran of limitations. They'd like to proceed with strength, uh, to be able to engage us from a position of, of equal, where respect is on the table, uh, but they aren't going to be pushovers. And the thought that we could have broken their will, uh, brought them to heel in some manner, and had them beg for a, an outcome similar to the one that uh, Pompeo outlined a year ago spring in Washington is just fancy, a fantasy. Uh, so there we are, we're faced with reality. Do people understand it uh, yet? I think the president's frequent messages that he wants to meet the president of Iran is some degree of recognition that this is a significant player but it hasn't taken shape to meet the terms the Iranians have put on the table, which is a relaxation of sanctions and an opening of the European INSTEX agreement and the funds that would flow to offset what Iran has lost as a result of our defiance of the JCPOA. So it's a, there's a tough road ahead, but the Iranians have laid out threat massive resistance, and a way out, a political way out, to begin to have dialogue and diplomacy take the place of, of uh, threats of war. And I think those are in our interest to look at very carefully and reassess where we are and find a common basis with our Arab friends to be able to engage rather than defy. Well, we thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Frank Wisner, for this uh, tour d'horizon largely of the Middle East, but not uh, limited to it. And as a token of our appreciation, uh, we have new cufflinks from the Council of American Ambassadors. So <laughs> we've already given you, I'm sure, enough Christmas ornaments to decorate an entire tree. So <laughs> we'd like you to have these are, these are our newest, uh, newest iteration of our cufflinks. And I hope you don't have them already. Wonderful. And so thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. One, one last word. I'm sorry. I think I'm overstaying my welcome, but uh, I'm really pleased to hear that you will be taking a trip to the Balkans and that you will be visiting Albania, uh, Kosovo, um, I, northern Macedonia. Um, I believe it is critically important that you do this. Europe will not be whole and secure until it figures out how to engage the Balkans and finish the process of European absorption of the Western Balkans and NATO its own reach into the area. Uh, the Russians are knocking on the door and we're not pushing back. Uh, the Chinese have begun to make a presence in the region. You'll discover that. It is time for the natural advantages of Europe and the United States to express themselves again. Now that you're going to find real problems, you'll look at the Kosovo-Serbia problem, uh, you'll 
look at the Macedonia issue. Uh, keep in mind there is an unresolved question in Bosnia, but all of them require American commitment and attention. The job in the Balkans, which is the job of European security and Euro-Atlantic security, is not over until it's over, and it's not over yet. Well, we will be, uh, we will be uh, functioning there in, in cooperation with our sister organization, the Council of Albanian Ambassadors, so the two CAAs uh, will undertake this mission in May, and we will certainly uh, bear your thoughts and your admonitions in mind. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Ambassador Frank Wisner at the Council of American Ambassadors Economic Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening.